Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. As Austin said, we are wrapping up this series called The Domino Effect. Um, I've enjoyed preaching. I hope you've enjoyed uh, hearing it. And more than that, I hope that God's worked in your life through it. And so um, we're going to wrap this up. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel, looking specifically at chapters 13 and 14, um, really looking at what can happen when one person, but especially a church, a group of people, take their steps of faith, their next steps of faith, what kind of domino effect can there be? What kind of um, impact can there be that goes beyond that one step of faith and really begins to change a landscape, change a community, change a nation, change the world? What can happen when we really take that seriously and take those next steps? Now, today we are going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to jump way back to start, though, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So if you go all the way to the front of your Bible and then you go to the right, you're going to eventually run into 1 Samuel. Um, mine is about three-eighths of an inch thick from the front to the 1 Samuel, so nobody sure might get you in the ballpark. But um, when we look at this, we're going to be reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to begin in, verses, uh, in verse 34. Now, I want to set it up for you because um, it's, under, it's important to understand this very first part, um, to understand the message as a whole. So what's happening is Israel is a nation that's been set apart by God. Um, the Jewish people were set apart. They would ultimately bring forth the Messiah through, through them, through that nation. Uh, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, was to come from them. Um, so they were to be governed by God. God was to be their king. Um, and so for as long as they existed up until this time, they were governed by God. And God would lead them by speaking to a priest, by speaking to a prophet who would give them God's word and direct them in their next steps. Now they come to this point where um, they get to a place where Samuel, who, you know, obviously the book is named after, um, Samuel is getting older. His sons are not living for God. And so they get to looking around and they're like, we need to do something about this. And so they decide that they want to have a king and they say, we want a king like the other nations. And so it was really a rejection of God as their king. And they wanted somebody to rule over them that would lead them into their battles. But God was the one who had done this for all these years. And now they're getting to this point where they're saying, we want a king. Saul was the man that they picked, and so, um, or that God picked. He anointed Saul. Saul had these moments of, of, of really showing his potential, but ultimately Saul didn't fulfill what he ultimately could have done, um, what he ultimately was called to do, um, because he didn't really have a lot of trust in God. He didn't uh, have a heart for God, and so he ends up falling short of his potential. We're going to read about someone else who did this. His name is Eli. And he also has some sons who were really wicked. And, and so I want to read chapter 2. Eli was, at this time, the priest. He was the one who was leading the people of Israel, who God was speaking through. And he had some sons who were really wicked, who did not follow the Lord. And so if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to begin there in verse 34. It says this, God tells Eli, he says, and what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, so that, those are his two sons, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. 
I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. Now, this is immediately pointing us to Samuel, but ultimately it points us to Jesus. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. So let me kind of try to explain what's happening. Eli has not corrected his sons. He tried a little bit, but they're doing some really wicked stuff. So they're in charge of the tent of meeting, which is kind of the holy place. This is the holy place where God's presence was, right? And they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the tent of meeting. They were taking offerings that were set aside for God. They were eating those offerings that weren't supposed to be provided for them. Eli was eating these offerings. So basically what God says is because you haven't done anything with your sons and because you've even participated in this, your priestly line is cut off. Your line that would have been established forever is cut off. Um, I'll raise up another priest. I'll raise up another prophet who will lead my people, who will have a heart and a mind that is like mine. And so now let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. And this is what it says. So Saul was instructed by Samuel to wait seven days before he made a sacrifice. And they were about to go to war. Saul begins to freak out because his soldiers are beginning to disperse and leave. So Saul, rather than waiting on Samuel, makes the sacrifice. He, he, he was not trusting in God. He, he, he disobeyed his command. And so Samuel gets there right after Saul makes his sacrifice. And this is what he ends up telling him. He says, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's Command. So think about what's happened here. In chapter 2, you see a priestly line that was cut off. Eli's priestly line, the, the, his descendants will no longer be the priests that, that, that lead Israel. Then you come to Saul and you see where his line now, because of disobedience, because of not having a heart for God, not loving the Lord, his line has now been cut off. Let's keep going. Verse 14, 1 through 3, or chapter 14, 1 through 3. It says, One day Jonathan, son of Saul said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. This is something we've talked about a lot. Jonathan goes and attacks this, these Philistines. He has a great victory. The Philistines panic. Israel ends up having a great victory. But the part I really want us to focus on today is this. It begins in, in verse 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. And listen, this is really important. Little detail, but really important. Among him was Ahijah, who was wearing an afad. This was a priestly garment that they would wear when they would intercede and, and go before the Lord. Listen to this. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitu, son of Phinehas. Y'all remember that name? Chapter 2. The son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. One more passage. Hang with me. We're about to get into this. 
So go over now, 14, verse 36. In this, they've gone to victory. Um, they, they've really routed the Philistines. It was all started by Jonathan's step of faith. Now Saul is wondering, should I continue to attack? And so he says this in verse 36. And he's made this stupid command that, that the army can't eat. Um, like they couldn't eat anything until he had avenged his, himself against his enemies. And so they're all weak. Um, Jonathan didn't hear this command. He's going through the woods. He sees some honey. He eats a little bit of honey. And this is what we're going to read about. It says, Saul said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. So his, his men are saying, do whatever seems best to you. But the priest, Ahijah, said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. So Saul therefore said, come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. It goes on. They had this procedure where they would kind of um, like roll dice kind of thing. And it would sort of pick out who was the guilty one. Well, it ends up falling on Jonathan. Saul wants to kill him because he ate a little bit of honey, even though he had led this great victory. Saul's losing his men. Um, so they won't allow him to kill Jonathan. But what we see here, and I want you to get this picture of this. Saul is trying to figure out whose sin is causing this. And he's looking to Jonathan because he ate honey and disobeyed his command. What he's not realizing is the reason God's not speaking to him is because he's not obeying God's command. And I want you to see this picture. You've got Ahijah who is coming from this priestly line that is no longer legitimate. It is an illegitimate line of priests. He is not a legitimate priest who would go before the Lord to hear the Lord and give Saul the word of the Lord. And beside him, you have a king who has now been rejected by Yahweh. So you have this illegitimate king who his descendants would be an illegitimate lineage. And so the picture is really sad. You went from this place where Eli could have been a great priest and had a great lineage of priests that follow. You have Saul, who was the first king of Israel, who has glimpses of greatness but never fulfilled it. And he is blaming Jonathan for this, that God's not speaking to me. He needed to look in the mirror. I want us to pray. We're going to get into this and really see, um, I feel like, some things that we struggle with that keep us from hearing God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for who you are. We thank you for your word. It's truth. I thank you for every person that is in this room, every person that's listening online, every person, God, that, that hears your word. I pray, God, that you would um, guide my heart, guide my tongue. God, use your spirit to, to say the things that you want to be said. And God, I, I just know, Lord, I know you want to move in people's hearts this morning. God, I pray that we would be open to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I know there was a lot of information, but we'll try to tie it together. I wanted to ask you a question to start there. How many of you have ever had such an embarrassing moment, like you, there was no coming back from that embarrassing moment? You, you've had that kind of thing happen 
where you're like, I just might as well leave. I can't come back from this. I'm never coming back to this spot, this place again, because I can't I overcome this. Well, I kind of had one of those moments on Friday. So my youngest son plays for William James baseball. So they were having their blue-white game. Well, they asked me and another dad to come and pitch for the blue-white game. Now, understand, I haven't pitched since I was 17. So I go out to pitch, and, and, and I get there. We're kind of warming up. Um, I talk to the other dad. I'm like, so are we just throwing fastballs or what? He's like, man, I'm throwing my whole arsenal. I'm like, well, I'm just going to bring it then. And so he's like, and then he made this comment, and he's a friend of mine. But he's like, it's me against you. So our, our competitive juices are flowing. We're kind of laughing together, but we kind of know too, like, <laughs> I'm coming after you, you know. And so we get up there, do pretty good for the first, um, I don't know, five and two-thirds innings. Like I had one inning that gave up like four runs, all unearned, and made a bunch of errors. And then we get to the last inning, and our team had scrapped back, man. We come back, we tie this thing four to four. And we're in this place where it's the last inning. We're going to end in a tie. We, we, we're down to the last out. Um, one kid had gotten on base. I'm pitching. One kid got on base because of an error. And he's on base. And so um, he ends up at second. And so I just got to get this other kid out, right? And here I am, I'm 48. I'm throwing to like 12-year-olds. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I will say this, though. The first changeup I threw was dirty. It was nasty. <laughs> It was like you just pulled a string, dove down, kid missed it by three feet. Awesome. He was 11. But it was still awesome. I'm like, whew, I don't know if I threw it that good in high school. I might have a chance. I asked him, I was like, is there any scouts here? And uh, I'm pretty sure I at least broke 60 um, on the radar gun. Nobody had one officially. But we're in there, and, and, and it's, it's, it's intense, right? Man on second. Uh, he's the win and run. Um, I've done pretty good so far. had made an idiot of myself. So um, I get a couple of strikes on this kid. I'm like, all right, we're fixing to just get, just, I'm fixing to throw this one. So I rear back. I throw it. He hits just a little chopper back to the mound. And, and I'm like, this is, this is easy. This is cake. Like, I've done this 100 times. Well, I get ready. I get my glove up, and the ball disappears. Like, I lose it. I can't see it. And so I got my glove right here, and all of a sudden, it hit me right here. <laughs> like, if you came up to me, and you put your hand six inches from my face, and you hit me in the chin, you could not hit me more square than this baseball hit me in the chin. I had the stitches from the baseball. Like, you could see, like, the stitches, the red stitches on my chin after this. And so that wasn't even the worst part. The ball rolls towards first base. So my competitiveness kicks, kicks in. I realize we got to get this out. I'm wearing tennis shoes. Should have wore cleats. I'm running to get the ball. I bend down, get it, flip it like this to the first baseman. By the way, made a good throw. And I flip it, but then my feet go out from under me. And so I belly flop. Somehow this arm ends up under this one. I'm in some kind of pretzel position. And I'm like just totally embarrassed right I went I was talking to the parents we we're laughing about it. they were laughing about it and I was fake laughing about it and one of the moms was like it was so crazy she was like when you fell there was like this collective ooh that just went through like all the parents and so 
it was one of those moments I realized, like, I'm never going to live that down. Like, that will haunt me forever. Um, there's no coming back from that. And I say, it's just a funny story just to share with you. But I but also think it ties into this. It ties into the fact that for Eli, for Saul, there was no coming back. Like, they had, they had been rejected at this point. They, they had, their hearts had gotten so far from God that they were rejected. And here's the biggest issue. There was no relationship with God for them at this point. There was no affection. Saul had no affection for God. It was really Saul just trying to do what Saul wanted to do. He wanted to be in control. He didn't want to really surrender his life and the nation to God and allow God to continue to work through him, which is what God desired. And so when we look at this, the issue was relationship. And I want you to see this. If we're going to have a domino effect, if we're going to have a domino effect in our individual life, we're going to have a domino effect as a church, then there has to be a relationship that we have with God. There has to be a love that we have for God. There has to be a love that we have for Jesus. There has to be a love that compels us to take those steps of faith to accomplish his purposes. And so we're looking at this and I'm realizing if I don't have a relationship with Jesus, if I have no affection for Christ, if I have no love for God, then I'm really missing the whole point. I'm not being compelled by his love. And for us, a lot of times we're not compelled by his love. In churches, we're not, people aren't compelled by his love. It's, it's just a place that we go. And so I want to talk this morning about some illegitimate priests. We see Eli. We see an illegitimate king. But there are some illegitimate priests, not necessarily people, but what I would use symbolically as illegitimate priests that we think can get us into a relationship with God. These are things that we either look to or we practice thinking this is how I get into relationship with God. But ultimately, I have no love for God. But to love, know God is to love God. When we see who he is, we love him. We want to know him. When we, our minds are open, our eyes are open, we want to know this God. And there are these, what I would call symbolically illegitimate priests that we think are able to bridge that gap between us and God that our sin has created. But they can't. The first one of these that I would say is religion. Religion is, is symbolically an illegitimate priest. Religion cannot get you to God. I looked up the definition. It says this, a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, belief, and practices. The service and worship of God or the supernatural. Commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor or enthusiasm, passion, and faith. Now, here's the thing that's missing from that. Any connection with God. There's no mention of, of it being some type of connection with God. It's only mention of going through rituals. Now, I want to read you another definition. It says, a system of co or collection of such beliefs, a custom or act based on such a belief, irrational fear of what is unknown or mysterious, especially in connection with religion, any blindly accepted belief or notion. 
I want you to think about that definition and their definition of religion. I want you to hear how closely they're related. And you look at it, a system or collection of such beliefs sounds a lot like the definition of religion. But you know what that's the definition of? Superstition. Superstition. And here's what I would challenge the church with today. Not just this church, the Big C Church. I believe more people who attend church and call themselves Christian are more superstitious than they are Christian. I believe Jesus is like a lucky rabbit's foot. We just kind of stick him in our pocket and, hey, I'm going to go through the rituals, man, and hopefully things work out. Come on, Jesus. It's like sticking a buckeye in your pocket when you're going hunting. And I would say this, that more people are superstitious than they are Christian. Our hearts don't have affection for God. There's no relationship. There's just this superstitious religion that tells me if I go to church, if I do the right things in that, then, then look, I, I, things, things hopefully, whew, cross, cross my fingers, are going to go well for me. Maybe God will put his favor on me, not realizing that God has already shown us his favor in Jesus. If I were to find religion, it would be this thought. It would be if I go through the ritual, the right rituals, I will be okay. If I go through the right rituals, I'll be okay. The second symbolic, illegitimate priest that we think can mediate, can bridge the gap between us and God, can get us to God, is legalism. Here's the definition of legalism. Strict adherence to a principle, to a law, or prescription especially to the letter rather than the spirit. The doctrine that salvation is gained through good works. The judging of conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. Now listen to this definition. Principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. A particular system of values and principles of conduct especially one held by a specified person or society. The first definition is legalism. The second definition is morality. They're very closely connected. And for too many people in the church, we have confused a relationship with Jesus with morality. And we think that if I can do the right things, I will be accepted or I will be okay or I can have relationship with God. But God didn't send Jesus to make us moral. God sent Jesus to capture our heart so that he could put his spirit in us to make us righteous by giving us his righteousness and him taking our unrighteousness. He came to bring us into relationship with the Father, that we would have love for God, that we would be compelled by that love, that we would be compelled to draw near to him, that we would be compelled to make him known, that we would be compelled to go to the ends of the earth until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But legalism can't bring us into that relationship. Morality can't bring us into that relationship. But this is the thing I can promise you. If you walk in relationship with God and God has your heart and you're walking and you're abiding in Christ, he will change your life. He will produce the fruit that he desires to produce in your life. 
But in church, we've been told to focus so much on morality that this relationship has been thrown away so that now we just become legalistic and we try to live a moral life because if I can do the right things, I will be okay. The third one is this, is, is penitence. Penitence. Here's the definition of penitence. The action or feeling or showing of sorrow and regret for having done wrong. So it's feeling bad. Man, I know I shouldn't have done that. That was bad. Gosh, I feel bad. Man, shouldn't have done that. Really sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that that happened. But see, pen penitence is not what God calls us to. God calls us to repentance. Repentance and penitence are very different. In penitence, you may feel sorry. You may even tell somebody about it. You may feel sorry. You may even tell God you're sorry. But there's a difference in being sorry and being repentant. Repentance literally means to change one's mind. If there's a change of mind, it leads to a change of direction. Listen, repentance is literally this. It is a second thought that corrects a first incorrect thought. It is a second thought that corrects a first thought. It is literally a change of mind that results in a change of action. It's very different from penitence. Penitence, I feel sorry. In repentance, I have a change of mind. I understand through faith. I understand through faith. I, I, I have a change of mind that turns me and leads me to God. I have a change of mind that leads me and changes my direction. I have a change of mind that changes my action. But what I see so many times is penitence, not repentance. Let me tell you where I see a lot of, a lot of penitence. A lot of penitence happens in this. When a wife's about to leave a husband, I see a lot of penitence. I see people walk in, and, and, and the husband's like, man, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I, I, I'll do anything. I, I, I just, man, I, I realize, like, I'm about to lose everything. Tell me what I need to do. I, I, you know, I, I know I need to go to church more. I know I need to read my Bible more. I know I, know I need to pray more. I, I know I need to be a better person. And I'm like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. If you have no desire for relationship with Jesus, it's not really going to change anything. Going through the motions and acting sorrowful is not what God calls us to. He calls us to this change of mind that leads to a change of action. And that happens as God changes our heart. And our heart is changed as we walk with him daily. There's a difference in penitence and repentance. But this is one of those symbolic, illegitimate priests that we think somehow, if I just feel bad, if I feel condemned long enough, then, then eventually it just kind of goes away and I'll feel accepted again. But that's not what God calls us to. The last one, and we could probably go on with these forever, but the last one that I felt like really strongly to talk about today, the last illegitimate priest are pastors or other Christian leaders. Our pastors are other Christian leaders. You can't look to another person to be your mediator between you and God. There's only one mediator, and his name is Jesus. 
And too many times we look at a pastor or we look at someone else who is a Christian leader and we look to them to hear from God, and that's great. We need to do that. But the thing that you've got to understand is that person is not to take the place of your relationship with God. Jesus didn't die so you had to get this second hand. Jesus died so you could be in relationship with him and you can hear God's voice. He died so that you could know him. He died so that you could love him. He died so that you could be empowered by his spirit. He didn't die so that you could just think that the time that I get to spend with God is when Brandon's up there preaching or you're listening to a podcast. I love this, man. This is so awesome. People come up to me all the time and they're like, Hey, Pastor, um, you know, I was listening to my favorite preacher the other day on a podcast. And I'm like, was it our podcast? <laughs> no, 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 this was is, is so-and-so. I'm like, all right. That felt good. It, it, happens, it happens a lot. So they're listening to their favorite preacher. I'm like, am I number two? Maybe am I in the top five? And... and it's so easy, right? I can't stand it when people call me reverend. Do I look like a reverend to you? Please say no. I can't stand it because you know what's in reverend? Revere. You know who the only one who should be revered is? God. Jesus. That's the only one that should be revered. I shouldn't be revered. You shouldn't revere. You shouldn't be in awe. Oh, not that good. I'm not even your, the people here's favorite preacher. <laughs> shouldn't be in awe of me. You be all in God. You know, of Jesus, what Jesus has done. There's only one priest, one mediator between us and God. It's Jesus Christ. And here's why He's the one who paid the price for your sin. He's the one who lived a perfect life so that he could take your sin off of you, put it on him, go to a cross, which represented the curse of death, take the wrath of God for that sin, and you go free. You're made right. Look up the definition. I did a lot of definition work. Definition of an idol, a person or thing that is greatly admired, loved, or revered. The only one of those three that I would hope you have for me or that you have for any other Christian leader is love. Is love. I hope you love me. I know some of you don't, but I hope you love me. You love me like fifth, but I hope you love me. I want us to go now. Let's go to the New Testament. I want us to look. We just got a few minutes. We don't have too long. But I want us to look at this because this is really important. Remember, we've got Eli, who is this illegitimate priest. We've got Saul, who is an illegitimate king. And, and I want us to go to the New Testament. Go to the book of Hebrews. Now, you're going to have to go to the New Testament. Go all the way through all of the, the Gospels. Um, had to go through the book of Acts and a bunch of the letters. If you look at the back of my Bible, I'm going to say it's about five-eighths of, uh, of an inch from the back of my Bible to Hebrews. Maybe again, that gets you in the area. But we're going to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, right? Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It says this. 
It says the law, the rules, the Ten Commandments, those things that were given by God that the Israelites were supposed to adhere to. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. So, so they're just this, this something pointing to something else. He says it's not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been made clean once and for all. So these are, these are sacrifices being made for sin. He said, but they don't make them clean once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual, listen to this, reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying, listen, these, these priests, even the priests that came from the right line, he's saying the sacrifices that they made, the sacrifices of bulls and goats and these things that were prescribed in the Old Testament that ultimately point us to the sacrifice of Jesus, he's saying, look, these things don't even get you there. These things can't take away your sin. These, all these do is remind you of sin. All the law can do is remind you of sin. Truthfully, all the law can do is condemn you. The law can't save you because no one can keep it perfectly. It's why Jesus came and did that. So look at um, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Just go back there a couple of pages. We could preach this one section forever. This is so incredible when you think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, it says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, that's the children of Israel, but it's all of us, we all have flesh and blood. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, meaning Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. How incredible is it just reading that verse? That he became flesh and blood. That he left his heavenly throne as we sang earlier. He put on flesh and blood and he lived as a child just like us. He lived as a person just like us. And he defeated death. Once and for all, he says, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and listen, and faithful high priest. He ultimately, Jesus is the mediator in service to God and that he might make atonement or a pay for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who were being tempted. I want you to see that. It's such a clear presentation of what Jesus did, that Jesus came in flesh and blood like you and I so that he could live a life we couldn't live, that he could take the sin that is on us and lift it off of us and put it on himself. It's such a perfect picture of why he had to come in the flesh, why the word had to become flesh, why he had to walk the earth and ultimately go to the cross. Now go back real quick to chapter 10. I just want you to see the legitimacy of Jesus's priesthood and how he is the great high priest. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, day after day. Listen to this, day after day. That already sounds tiring. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what he's talking about at the beginning. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I want you to see this difference. These, these priests who are day after day making these sacrifices, going through these religious rituals, doing these religious duties, and it says they are standing. They're just slaughtering animal after animal after animal in hopes that it can pay for sin. But it says when Jesus came and he offered himself as the final sacrifice, it says that he sat down. Isn't that interesting? It says all these other priests stand and they do these religious duties. But when Jesus died, he sat down. Why did he sit down? Was he tired? No, he was finished. He had made the one sacrifice once and for all. It was done. He even said it on the cross. It is finished. In other words, I've done everything that needs to be done to pay for your sin. Now I'm going in a tomb for three days. And after three days, I'm going to be raised to life. And in that, I'm defeating death. And I'm taking death and the power of death from the devil so that you can have life. Now go back one more time, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, the writer of Hebrews wants these, these believers to really see that Jesus is better. Don't go back to that old way and those illegitimate priests that can't bridge the gap for you. Hold on. He says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. These aren't, he's not just one who's just killing animals. He's not just one who does his duty. He, he empathizes. He was tempted. It says, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so he is the great high priest. He's not one who just goes in and cold-heartedly makes these sacrifices. He is the one who loves us so much that he gave his life for us. And I'm telling you today and pleading with you today, don't turn back to some symbolic, illegitimate priest like religion or superstition or legalism or morality or penitence or some pastor or, or celebrity Christian that you look to and think, this is how I'm going to get to God. This guy, man, he, he's the one. Boy, woo, I love it. He feeds me. Listen, God's given you the ability to come into his presence through prayer and word and worship and community. You can actually be with God and guess what? God can feed you. Amen. But it happens through relationship. Guess what? I got a definition. Relationship, the state of being related or interrelated, knowing someone Spending time 
with someone. Relationship. So different than religion, so different than living in a superstition or legalism or morality or penitence. So different than just depending on for 35, 40 minutes a week, just hearing somebody preach. So different than a podcast, a relationship. And this relationship comes through faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith this way. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And when you look at this, I want you to see this faith. It's greater than belief. It's greater than belief. It's it's so much greater than belief. God, through his spirit, when we press into God and we begin to press on with God, God gives us a confidence that in faith we don't have. He gives us this confidence and this hope. And sometimes you just get to this place where you're just at the end of your rope and you just have to hit your knees and you just have to look up to God and say, God, give me the confidence. God, and you just have to begin to remember. You have to remember that death has been defeated, that death has been overcome, that you're living from a victory that God has already won, that he's already come out of the tomb and the tomb is still empty, that he's set down at the right hand of God because he's finished, that your future is secure, that no one can take you out of his hand and you begin to love him more and all of a sudden an assurance comes that you cannot have apart from faith faith apart from knowing Jesus. Religious ritual, superstition, legalism, morality, all of those things. Me, another pastor, all of those things. Penitence, just walking around guilty. None of those things can do for you what a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ can do for you. It's a confidence. It's a hope. It doesn't just come naturally. It's supernatural. Faith is a gift from God. But when I come towards him and I lean into him, he does something in my life and there becomes this confidence and this hope and this assurance about what I can't even see yet. I don't know tomorrow, but I know God. And sometimes you just have to come to this place where you let go. We quit living like Saul, man, and we're like, God, I love you, I trust you, I need you. And I'm gonna tell you, man, God, I've been carrying some heavy stuff myself and I realized, man, like, there's just times I just wanna scream. I just wanna go in the backyard, I just wanna scream. And I have to take my mind and I have to place it on things above, not on things below. And I have to begin to think about God and the promise and had to draw near to God and find that confidence and that assurance and that hope, even though I can't see the future. And yet we settle for this crap called religion We settle for this miserable 
legalism. We settle for just walking in condemnation. We settle for getting it secondhand from some pastor or preacher or Christian hero. And God's saying, hey, 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 I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'd love to meet with you, I'd love to talk to you. Can I come sit with you for a while? Can I take that burden off of you? Because here's the thing, my yoke is easy and my burden's light and if you'll just let me take that, then I will. And I'll give you an assurance and a hope and a confidence that you cannot have otherwise. But it comes through Jesus, it comes through relationship, it comes through love, it comes through knowing him. It comes through a heart that has affection for Christ. It's faith that gives us understanding of who he is. And if we can understand who he is, we can understand who God is. Outside of all of our experiences, outside of what the world has thrown at us, outside of the negativity of the world, outside of the hurt that we have, outside of the wounds that we have, outside of the bad church experiences we've had, when we begin to look at Jesus and who Jesus really is, what we begin to discover through faith is we understand who he is. And the Bible says, if I can understand who Jesus is, I can understand who the Father is. And I can run to my Father. I can know my Father. I can be held by my Father. And nothing in this world can take that away from me. And so today, maybe, maybe you don't have that relationship. Maybe for you, it's always been morality. Maybe for you, it's always been religion. Maybe for you, it's just been a superstition. Listen, man, there are so many superstitious Christians. And that's an oxymoron, right? And they don't even go together. And you just show up hoping, hoping things will go good, man. Or do you know him? Today, if the Lord's drawing you to himself and you say, I want to know him, I, today I know the Lord is speaking to me and saying, come to me. And it is the day of salvation for you. And you know the Lord is drawing you close. He is calling you as a son, as a daughter of the most high God. And he has spoken to your heart today, not out of emotion, but you know deep inside your heart that God is calling me, he's drawing me, he wants me in a relationship with him. He wants to take away my sin. He wants my life, my heart. He's my legitimate priest. He's my legitimate king of my life from this day forward. Why don't you, why don't you put your hand in the air and say, today I'm coming to Christ right now, right now. Amen. We're gonna have, if you raise your hand, we're gonna have somebody pray with you. See you right there. Listen, listen, today can be the day of a new life. That's what salvation is. It's when you go from death to life spiritually. And some of you, listen, you know, you know you've been playing the game, right? There's husbands in here, you've been playing the game. There's wives in here, you've been playing the game. There's college students, you just play in the game. Show up on Sundays and Wednesdays, but I'm playing the game. Maybe today you're tired of just playing the game. 
and your desire is a relationship with God through Christ. I'm ask you one more time. Today's that day for you. I would encourage you, listen, man, if, if you settle for less than a relationship, quit settling. I want to pray for us right now that if there's any kind of stronghold or inaccurate way of thinking in our mind that has led us to some type of illegitimate way of coming to God other than Christ, that that would be broken in our mind today. Father, I thank you today for the truth of your word. I thank you that you tell us that the weapons we fight with are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're spiritual in nature. They have divine power to pull down strongholds, to pull down inaccurate ways of thinking. And right now I pray, God, that if there is any stronghold of religion that has grabbed hold of someone's mind and it's robbing them of relationship, I pray, God, that you would break that in Jesus' name. I pray, God, if someone is here and they're trapped in this, this place of legalism where, where they're trying to come to you through morality, that they would realize that, God, that can't happen. It's impossible that the gap is too wide. I pray that there would be a new way of seeing, a new way of thinking, God, that there would be a, a change of mind, that that stronghold would be broken. I pray, God, if, if somebody just thinks that this is just walking in condemnation when I mess up or just feeling sorry, uh, God, I pray that that would be broken and they would realize that even today, even today, right now, through the blood of Jesus, through that was shed on that cross, God, that they can come to you. I pray right now, if, if, if someone's just made an idol out of some Christian leader or someone else, God, that, that, that is taking your place, I pray that that would be broken in Jesus' name. And I pray when we walk out of here, we would all seek a relationship, a deeper knowing of you, a greater love for you, that we would see the great love you have for us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.